Hey everyone, it's Paul here, and today's episode is brought to you by the lovely people supporting this podcast on Patreon. Patreon's the platform that I use to connect and develop a sort of interactive community of people that are really, really serious about unpacking these ideas that are serious about supporting the work I'm doing in this podcast. And this is our first ever Q&A episode. Today's questions and topic suggestions have been submitted by those members of the Deep Talks Patreon community. There's some amazing, excellent questions in here. And I'm looking forward to tackling as many of them as I can get to in a single episode. So what that means is that, especially as you're going to hear some of these questions, which are massive theological questions, some really unique questions brought up by those members in the Patreon community, there's no possible way that I can do each one of these questions justice in a single episode. I probably couldn't even do it justice in a series. People write entire PhD level dissertations and books and volumes of books that are dedicated to some of these questions and subjects. So with all of those proper disclaimers and qualifiers, let's get into our first Q&A episode. It's July's Q&A. Thank you, Patreon supporters and members. Let's get to the questions. All right. So this first question comes from Paul, and maybe I am a bit biased. You have a lovely name, Paul, so maybe I'm starting with you. For that reason, no, Paul Paul asks a, a wonderful question that I think will help us sort of dovetail into even some of the other questions that a few of the other members have submitted. Paul's question is, if there is no darkness or sin in God and he created everything, where does the ability to sin even come from? <laughs> oh, gosh. All right. So why don't we start off here with a doozy, right? I mean, this is really the question one of the most perplexing questions in Christian history, and not just Christian history, it's a, it's a question essentially any theist wrestles with that has a picture of an ultimately uh, all-powerful and ultimately all-good God. But Christians, we've wrestled with this for the past 2,000 years, and even before that, the the completion of the, the, the Jewish story that we find in Christ, before that, we, we see even... God's people in Israel wrestling with this very same question. So I'm going to just try to answer in a way that least exposes us to some of the possible options out there for this answer, while saying that there is no universal agreement among Christians on the answer to this question. In fact, if anything we could say universal is that there isn't a clear answer to this question, but some have tried because it is an important question. I think it's important because it gets at the the way that we would respond to this question. While very likely it is possibly unknowable, some of the ideas that we have about God and the problem of sin... uh, play a significant role in how we think of God's character and nature, and not just that, but it affects how we interact in a world full of 
sin. So maybe we can first start off by giving some sort of definition of sin. I, I like, Paul, how you asked a question about darkness, is if there is no darkness or or sin in God, because I think that actually ultimately gets at some of the ways that theologians throughout history have attempted to deal with this problem. But let's first, let's, let's give some sort of definition for sin. You know, I think what we first would need to do is separate that sort of darkness and sin that is the result of what we might call moral agents. So humans, potentially angelic beings, and what we might call the the sort of evil and darkness we experience in the world that is sometimes classified as natural evil. Those things which seemingly have no direct consequence as a result of a human moral agent. So if you want to start off just by understanding some of the differences between what we might say are a moral evil and a natural evil, an example of a moral evil would be... Um, Jeffrey Dahmer, <laughs> for example, right? A, a serial killer that is a cannibal. The moral evil there is the direct result of, or I should say, yeah, the direct result of Dahmer's choice to act in that way in the world. So in a lot of ways, we can see those sorts of, here's a person, they acted this way in the world, and it brought about this result. And if it's evil, we can attach that to a moral agent, an agent that is fully capable of making moral choices. The other category, though, is natural evils. And natural evils are, again, a lot more difficult to assign some causality to, or at least a basic causality to, or maybe better yet, uh, we could say it's more difficult to assign causality to a mind, to an intending agent behind that um, natural evil. A thing like a, a hurricane, like a Hurricane Katrina was a natural evil. We look at it and we go, it causes death and destruction. And so that's a natural evil. That's a moral evil. So let's zero in for a moment, maybe just on the question that I, I think that you're getting at when, we, when you use a word like sin, a question about moral evil done by conscious moral agents. I think ultimately the definition I normally use to describe what sin is, is acting against God's intentions for reality. Now, sometimes we can get these really overly simplistic sort of Sunday school answers that we need to address here. And I don't mean to speak of Sunday school disparagingly. We do a Sunday school at our church. Kids need to go through it. it it's a great, you know, we need these foundational or intro level introductions to the Christian narrative to help catechize, help people understand the meta story of the scriptures and church history, all this sort of stuff. But when I say an overly simplistic Sunday school answer, what I mean is when many people think about this problem of sin, the problem of evil, and specifically about moral evil in the world, one of the common Christian responses is to go, well, it's it's simple. We have sin in the world because Adam and Eve, in their sin, they brought about a fall of creation, a fall of humanity, by which now all humans are born into the world sinful. And there's varying levels among different Christian traditions as to how broken 
and how fundamentally corrupted human nature has become, ranging from everything like a, a what we might call a total depravity, almost like you know, not not even in a sort of Calvin sense, but we could go all the way to a the English philosopher Thomas Hobbes sense of total depravity, right? That the human nature is so incredibly broken that it has fundamentally become evil. And then you may have other traditions which may not like the language of total depravity, but still affirm some sort of what you could call like original sin, that this original sin of Adam is passed down to us, that we become born with a bent towards this, with appetites towards doing the things that are against God's intentions for reality, all the way to maybe maybe some of the more Eastern Orthodox understandings of original sin, where they wouldn't necessarily talk about it in the same sort of Augustinian, Calvin sort of way. And they might focus more on the that human nature is sick as a result of it. It's sick and requires healing. But none of these are the answer to Paul's question that he's getting at, because we have another problem. We have a problem where Adam and Eve even had the capacity at all to be participants in a sinful act. We could even bring about the problem of what in the world is this talking, deceiving serpent doing? Why is there a tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And for those of you that are perhaps in the the evolutionary creationist camp, which by the way, uh, a couple weeks from now, quick side note, we've got a fun interview coming up in a few weeks with Jim Stump, who is the VP of BioLogos to talk about issues relating to evolution and theology as quick side note but for some of those some of you in those camp that understand that the world has been around for a really really long time that homo sapiens and humans have been around for a really really long time and you have maybe different ways of understanding what the story of genesis 2 and 3 is about there still is the problem of uh, humans committing moral, evil moral choices for potentially millions of years before Adam and Eve. So we have these problems, right? And we have the other problem that Christians have historically affirmed that there was evil in the cosmos, that there was a, a fall of the angels, that there was this Satan that we see in the New Testament. And I say in the New Testament specifically, because I think this is actually going to come up later in regards to another question. Uh, you, you know, there's some really strong debate about whether or not we actually see this New Testament Satan anywhere in the Old Testament, at least specifically named as Satan. Uh, but that's a We'll continue on that, <laughs> that, that road at another time. So come back to this road. We still have the problem in the Christian tradition of going, okay, before Adam and Eve sinned, before they chose to reject participating in their vocational call to be a priesthood in the world, before they did that, we already have an evil agent, an evil moral agent in the universe. There might be some that go, this is just a talking snake, a talking serpent. But Christians haven't traditionally interpreted that text in Genesis 2 and 3 that way. 
they've seen this and they make this connection historically between that serpent in Genesis 2 and 3 to the the dragon of Revelation and what John says in 1 John about the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil and that the devil's been sinning from the beginning. We already have a problem where moral agents have already fallen in the universe, which is why I think Paul, who submitted his question, really gets the the complexity of this question and the problem with it. Because we might say, okay, Adam and Eve were the first sinners. All right, let's, let's pause our science and theology discussion for a moment and the questions that might come up about whether or not, you know, homo sapiens before Adam and Eve were you know, moral agents or whether they were just like animals. There's all sorts of problems. And I can't wait to talk to Jim Stump about those things in a few weeks. But let's pause that for a second and just go with the, the, the that Adam and Eve were the first sinners in human history. But that idea to rebel against their vocational call, to rebel against God's intended order for creation, didn't just pop into their heads by themselves, right? In the narrative, the biblical narrative, the serpent pops this thought into their head. Before that, they were in this state of innocence that we don't see any sort of, well, they were really wrestling with this problem about whether or not they should eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. No, it doesn't happen until this thought enters into their head. And I think Paul's brilliant question that he asks me is like, at what point then, if we go, all right, well, Satan was already a fallen moral agent at that point that we have fallen angels, that we have demons, all of that sort of the spiritual agents of the universe, that there's already been a fall. There's already been, in a sense, a sin in the cosmos already. Who tempted Satan? Who put that idea into his head? Was there a point where this Satan was, or these fallen angels were in a state of innocence like Adam and Eve? And what put the thought into their head? Oh, maybe you've never thought about this. It's a problem. I mean, it's a really difficult problem. And there's a reason why there hasn't been unanimous agreement among Christians for the past two millennia on this. I think what you can do is, uh, this is going to be maybe an oversimplification, but you can look throughout church history and you can probably put Christians into one of two camps on this subject. And these are really, really broad categories, but I I think it could be helpful in helping us kind of understand where as you interact with other Christians that it may come down fundamentally to them feeling like it's one of these two options. All right, so option one, right? Option one is that God is in some sense intentionally responsible for the existence of evil. And those that would defend this sort of view would be those that have a high value for God as omnipotent, God as all-powerful. And so in an effort to preserve God's all-powerfulness, to preserve his omnipotence, they would have to see that 
evil is the direct result of God intending there to be evil in the world and in the universe and in the cosmos, but that evil is ultimately serving a divine purpose. For example, a divine purpose like, you know, justice or something like that, or divine purpose of a an ultimately redemptive story to come out of it. And so in that way, what we perceive as evil in that camp would really only seem to be evil because of our understanding and our limited point of view. In this view, God acts as the author of history, that he has written out all of the history of the cosmos in, within his own mind. And some people might call this the, the sort of blueprint model that God, the, that creation is always acting in accordance perfectly with the blueprint that God has decreed or foreordained, which does as a result lead all the way down to the sinful choices of human beings. The response some Christians have had to this view is to bring up the question of, well, if this is the case, then how is it that God cannot be the author? He isn't the author of sin. And this is where oftentimes, and again, these are broad generalizations, that there is a bit of an appeal to mystery that we might say there is a compatibilist free will, that somehow free will is compatible with God's divine uh, predestination and ordination of all things. And we can't understand the mind of God. And so this is the best we can do. We can speak against moral evils and encourage people to not commit them. But ultimately, this has its origination in God's intentional plan. The strength of this view, while maybe some of you have a immediate reaction against it. The strength of this view is that individuals need not be concerned that there is ultimately a force that acts against God that is beyond God's control or even God's intentional design. So in some ways, we could say this first camp is a monist camp, meaning the that God is the singular mono-cause of all, uh, all things, even those things which we might say are sin, yet there isn't an opposing force out there that possibly threatens God's omnipotence. At least this is how it is seen by many people that might fit into this very, very broad first category. The second category or the second team might say that God is in no way responsible for evil. And these various sorts of theologies might focus more on what makes God most God is his goodness and his love. And as a result of that, God has intentionally self-limited himself in order to allow for true libertarian free will. That is, people are actually free to do A or to do B. They are actually capable of doing that. In this sort of view, evil is a necessary possibility that comes comes as a result of free will. So in order for God to intentionally allow for free will, the necessary possibility is that people can veer away from that good that is God. They can veer away from his love, his loving essence. And this then would make 
sin the results, or again, people in this camp would like to think that this makes sin the result primarily of sinful choices of moving away. And then the evils that we experience in the world, the suffering is a consequence or a punishment of sins. There are some camps like process theology to say that uh, that hold to a view that it is uh, the very the very nature of reality uh, is structured in such a way that God cannot control everything. Um, that God cannot actually stop particular evils. So you have camps like process theology. You have other camps like open theism, which emphasize, in a certain sense, God's inability to actually do something about the sin to prevent the sin from happening, because that is just the very way that reality has been structured. In, in these sorts of theologies, there is traditionally a heavier role or a more important role given to Satan than in the first camp. In the first camp, again, Satan could almost be like God's watchdog, <laughs> that he, he's on a leash and that he's actually in some way doing a particular role that he has been assigned to do and foreordained to do by God in the cosmos. And yet we can still somehow in that, the there's still the emphasis that the Satan is still evil, that it's still wrong. But in the second camp, we see people put usually a much higher emphasis and role on Satan and Satan's ability. So in that way, we could say that the second camp can be maybe more dualist, that there are competing forces that we might say it's a warfare worldview a war, or a cosmology of warfare, that there is actually a, a struggle against good and evil, that evil human sinfulness and darkness is not the result of God's intentional foreordaining or allowing, but it, in some ways it, it goes so against the very nature of God, and yet God has in the very structure of reality, designed reality in a way for the possibility of it to exist. It's complex. Both of these are very complex. At the heart of the dispute between the two ways of seeing God is, I think, really a, a dispute about what makes God most God. Is what makes God most God his power or is what makes God most God his love? Because the 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 original problem of evil is how can God be all-powerful and all-loving when we see sin and brokenness in the world? So where the camps usually split is on an emphasis of one towards the other because they do seem at a fundamental level to not be able to coexist. The all-powerful nature of God and the present reality of sin and harm and darkness that we see brings into serious question, well, is he really all-powerful? So if you're going to retain his power, you're going to retain his omnipotence, then what you have to hold on to is that these things are happening and it's not a threat to God's power. It's in no way a threat because God is the one intending in an ultimate metaphysical sense, though, again, there are various, you know, groups ranging from, you know, traditional Catholics to 
you know, Calvinists and other reform groups that have a real problem with using a word like, well, God intended evil to happen because they go, well, no, he can't, but there's still a mystery here. It's happening as part of his foreordained decree. So they're trying to hold on to that. Nothing can challenge God's power. And pastorally, this can give people in some ways a sense of comfort when they experience the harmful effects of sin in their day-to-day life. They can get a sense that, well, this is not outside God's control. So when this terrible thing happens, when a family member is lost to a drunk driver and you get at the real existential question about why is there a world in which a sin like this is possible, someone could take comfort in a belief that, well, this is happening because God is in control and you have to trust that he's good and that this will lead to some other good end beyond what you're able to comprehend. So there's the sort of like pastoral practical encouragement from that first camp. The second camp goes, hang on a second. If God has to use these methods, the question that they have is, well, what makes God good at all? If this is the way he has to accomplish it, couldn't he have chosen a different way? First camp goes, no, this is the way that he chose. And it's not up to us to question that. The second camp goes, well, great. He might be all powerful, but I have to call into question his goodness, his benevolence, and his loving kindness. If in order to teach me a lesson about perseverance, you have to kill one of my family members in some senseless car accident. I mean, if God is holding Satan on a leash, as some believe, he's still the one holding the leash. And how can we say that God is good and loving if this picture of him, to some in the second camp, seems a little bit like God is the arsonist firefighter, that he is starting the fire and that he comes and he puts out the fires of the problem of sin and suffering in the world so that you would go, wow, the firefighter is awesome. But the people in the second camp go, whoa, pump the brakes. (laughs) He's also the arsonist. All right, I, I got to slow down here because I could obviously, I could go forever on this subject and we could spend weeks and months and years unpacking it. But I, I, I do want to give at least a little bit of a survey of, of some of the answer or at least attempted answers to Paul's question throughout the scriptures and a little bit of church history. So I'm going to try to fly through this real quick because I think it would be connected and help us get a point of reference for even some of the other questions. First, all right, let's start in the Old Testament. You know, by and large part, I think a lot of people that uh, do this sort of theodicy, again, theodicy is the the discipline of theology that deals with the problem of evil in lights of claims to God being all-powerful, all-good. That the theodicy that a lot of people that are in this sort of monist, you know, God is the singular cause and the intend, intender of, in some way, ultimate intendee of the way the world currently is, a lot of them build that primarily out of Old Testament pictures. 
and I, I, I think because in many ways, when we look through a survey of the Old Testament, uh, you know, Satan, at least again, as he's presented in the New Testament, does not exist in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, the majority of Hebrew Old Testament scholars uh, today recognize that even the picture, uh, the n- naming of Satan in Job, for example, is is not the, the same Satan that we see in the New Testament, that he is an angel whose role is to be the challenger in the divine council, among many other angels that exist. He's the, he's the prosecuting attorney, and uh, that's, that's his role, in fact. In the, the story in which Balaam and his donkey speaks to him, the angel that stops them on that road and causes the donkey to just go, you know, pump the brakes here, Balaam, the angel's name there is, uh, is Satan. That's what it is in, in Hebrew. It's the challenger. So we actually don't see anywhere in the Old Testament any evidence of demonic possession, right? We don't mention, there's no mention of specifically demonic spirits that harm humans in any way. We do see evil spirits mentioned though, but, and here's the, here's the interesting part that can kind of build this case for the first camp, is that they seem to be like just serving God's own plan. For example, Judges 9, 22 through 23, where God, quote, sends an evil spirit to create division between Abimelech and the people. We also see the uh, assignment, or I should say the assigning of God as the causal agent to the evil spirit that deranges Saul's mind, the evil spirit that torments Saul in 1 Samuel 16 through 19. So we see that picture that, that can really paint, think of another thing, like even like the angel of death in uh, the Exodus story, in the, 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 the plagues and the Ten Commandments. Who is the causal agent behind that? It's, it's God, or it's portrayed as being assigned to Yahweh. And then you jump into the New Testament, and, and we have 568 references to demons or Satan. 568. So we go from essentially zero. There's a few scant references to an angel called, named Satan in the Hebrew, or Hasatan, the adversary, the opponent. But in the New Testament, we have 568 references, and the activity of the Satan and the demons is like tormenting people. It's deceiving them. It's attempting it's tempting Jesus in the wilderness. It's causing suffering. And so this can in many ways help us understand how for many people, the way that they might land on this problem of evil and sin and suffering in creation has to come down to what their, and this is a bit of a theological term, but what their hermeneutic control is. What's a hermeneutic control? A hermeneutic control is essentially the the intentional choice to have this key be the way that you decode all the other symbols. So for some, in my tradition growing up as a charismatic Pentecostal, the ministry of Jesus in the New Testament was the hermeneutic control by which we interpreted the Old Testament. This led to a very dualistic, very much the second camp, 
way of seeing the world, which is why a gateway drug, I've talked about this before. I talked about it in my time as a guest on Greg Boyd's Renew podcast with with Dan Kent. I talked about how Greg Boyd was a gateway drug for me into theology because of my charismatic background. Because what Greg had provided in his defense of open theism or the open view of the future was a framework that allowed allowed us to see this thing that we wanted to affirm, which was the centrality of the benevolence, the goodness, and the loving kindness of God. It allowed us to hold on to our sort of hermeneutic control of seeing Jesus's ministry as the way we interpreted the rest of the scriptures. It allowed us to see ourselves in this sort of cosmic struggle this very much, still very much a dualist struggle against the opposing forces of light and darkness. So I've talked about this before, and this will eventually lead to our second question. I still want to get to some of the brief surveys of other positions. But this this led me into a an acceptance of maybe not the identical view of Greg's, but this open view of the future. The open view of the future was that the real, very reality, the structure of reality is designed in such a way that possibilities really exist. Real possibilities exist by which they do not become actualities until moral agents choose those things. And that was a framework that allowed me to see the possibility of possibility. It allowed me to see that uh, my choices to sin or not sin were, weren't predetermined, that that possibility really existed and that possibility was not settled in reality until I actively chose one or the other, which puts a, in many ways, it affirms the, the thing that many Christians have sought to hold on to, which is the centrality of our free will and our ability to freely choose or not to choose to participate with God's intended intentions for reality. Because if you can't do that, well, if you can't actually choose between sinning and not sinning, then, you know, the entire framework for morality, there's no system of ethics. And then you get to this question, at least in our minds, of whether or not God was ultimately good to begin with. The problem, though, the problem with that particular view, and it's interesting, if you want to check out, there's an interesting conversation, if you're kind of wanting to see maybe in the second camp, some of the disputes, the inter-family disputes, I think there's a great episode on the Renew podcast of a conversation between Greg Boyd and Thomas J. Ord. Thomas J. Ord is more of a process theologian. Greg is an open theist. And it's a really interesting discussion if you want to see some of the differences in that second camp there. Uh, Check that out. It's, It's a really interesting conversation. Because I still felt like what was at a problem, and I'm still working through this. I've talked about this. I talked about it with Dan in that episode. I still wrestle with this problem. That's the problem that Paul asked, the problem of when God was intending at some point to create reality a particular way, 
could he not have predicted that this is how it would turn out? Could he not have predicted that the Holocaust was going to happen? Or could he have done those sorts of calculations without somehow predetermining that they would happen and still yet figured it's worth it, right? And that that's that is essentially, I think, Greg's position. I'm, I'm hoping to get Greg on at some point to talk about these things, is that essentially the calculations, the math makes sense. In some ways, it feels a little bit like Leibniz. Leibniz, this is the best of all possible worlds. Okay, all right. <laughs> Again, I could go forever. But I do need to bring up, you know, the difference between maybe having this uh, Jesus' ministry as your hermeneutic control versus maybe something like the book of Job as your hermeneutic control. If Job maybe is your hermeneutic control, then you would then essentially read these New Testament scenarios where Jesus is casting out a demon or, you know, I I know this is Paul's original question. Isn't it about demonic possession? It's about sin, but I'm still going to bring it up anyways. You have these instances where, where Jesus is is dealing with the forces of darkness in the New Testament. If Job is your hermeneutic control, then how do you reinterpret those scenes? Well, you would maybe see Satan as, again, acting as a dog on a leash, right? And that perhaps Jesus's ministry is simply an announcement of God's future perfect rule and reign that God is going to finally and decisively act in history at some point to eliminate all suffering. Similar to Job's story, right? That there's going to be a final resolution, but in the meantime, there are these tests. There are these things that you will have to go through and there may be moral instruction in them. There may be an opportunity for sanctification in them. There may be just, these are just opportunities to trust God. There's all these different reasons. So when that's your hermeneutic control, then the gospels take a totally different shape. I want to bring up in both of these sides, though, that they both have some pretty valid reasons for believing what they believe. And this is why in my old days, I was much more polemic in my like anti-Calvin, anti-anything that sounded like determinism to me, anything that sounded like the first camp to me. And I've softened on that because I've actually spent time with people in that first camp. And I I see the way that they do theology. And I see that for both camps, the question still remains, why? Why? What in the world caused that first instance from what was good and what was light to now have darkness? Well, there's one explanation I want to kind of zero in on that comes from guys like Gregory of Nyssa and Augustine. There's others, obviously, so many others throughout church history that dealt with this problem. But for the sake of time, let's zero in on those two guys, all right? Uh, Gregory of Nyssa, in many ways, kind of borrows some of the the Neoplatonic metaphysics of his day to try to help people understand or deal with this question of the ultimate origins of evil. And this is where your great question, where you use the term darkness, right? And you, you asked more in uh, in your question about you know the difference between light and darkness. And I think your question gets at what guys like Gregory of Nyssa and Augustine 
used as a framework for helping us understand what evil and sin is and how it could have potentially originated, right? Uh, evil is, in Gregory of Nyssa's thought, uh, which he in a lot of ways borrows from a Neoplatonic school of thinking, evil is non-being, Evil is the moving away from the light. Evil exists as a absence or a privation of the good. It's not its own separate thing that gets created, right? In many ways, for people like Gregory of Nyssa and Augustine, who carries on at least this tradition, this this way of thinking from Gregory of Nyssa, though we had differences in other ways, you could think of God as pure light, but God structures reality in a way that makes it possible for moral agents to move away from the light the moving away from the light is the further away you get, the darker it gets. The end of that darkness for Gregory of Nyssa is non-existence, right? It is the cessation of all existence. So, so Gregory of Nyssa does this really interesting thing. You know, Origen before him had written extensively on his theories about sort of the cosmology of evil and Satan and the origination of this you know, the fall of angels, all that sort of stuff. Gregory of Nyssa just essentially boils it down to, well, what did Satan do? Satan closed his eyes to the good. Once, and this is quoting Gregory of Nyssa, uh, who by his apostasy from goodness had begotten in himself envy, was propelled with all of his weight in the direction of vice. So once you close your eyes to the light, you are now in darkness. So for Gregory of Nyssa, God structured reality in a way for that to be possible. It still maybe doesn't ultimately answer the question of why, but at least he, his metaphysics, his, his cosmology doesn't posit evil as a separate entity against the good, right? Evil is simply the ability that one has, that God has designed within the structure of reality to allow for freedom of will for moral agents, for them to actually move themselves away from the light. And as they do that, they head towards non-existence. He also called it, I love this phrase, a retrocession of the soul from the beautiful. Now for Gregory of Nyssa, once this had actually begun in creation, once this had actually happened in the cosmos, that Satan and fallen principalities would close their eyes to the good, that they would begin a movement away from the light. Why does God allow it to happen? Well, this was Gregory Anissa's explanation. His explanation was that once this movement away from the good began... God intentionally then would allow it to continue until it, quote, reached its utmost height 
And with the purpose of that, when it reaches its utmost height, when God applies the, quote, healing remedy in Christ, I should say healing remedy, quote, in Christ, that then this remedy would pervade, quote, pervade the whole of the diseased system. So that was Gregory of Nyssa's way of understanding this initial act, why God allowed that initial act of moving away from light to happen. Um you know, maybe that's not a satisfactory answer. I still at least at least find it interesting. You know, origin, like origin, Greg, Gregory also ultimately argued that evil's end is non-existence, that it will be annihilated. Gregory and Nyssa hold out, held out to a, what some have called like a universalist hope that God would somehow redeem everything, possibly redeem everything in the end, return it back to the light. But that again is a conversation for another time. Augustine himself kind of continues on in Gregory of Nyssa's school of thought. And for Augustine, evil is, quote, evil is that which falls away from essence and tends towards non-existence. So even for Augustine, he, he, he follows uh, Gregory of Nyssa's lead and says that evil is this moving away. The experience of evil and sin is the moving away from the light. And that would be the darkness, right? So I don't know if all that, that's like almost 40 minutes minutes for a first answer. We're not going to get through all of them here. We will. Maybe I'll split this up into a couple episodes. Uh, But Paul, to answer your question, uh, like Aquinas, um, Augustine, Gregory of Nyssa, none of them say or have any theory, ultimate explanation for why the movement of the w- away from the good is possible. I, I suppose the best answer that I could possibly formulate is that it, a movement away from the good is a necessary, it's a logical precondition for there to be a moral agency in the universe, for there to be any sort of freedom of will. And for someone like Kierkegaard, for example, you know, who's not usually, he's not like a metaphysical theologian. He's a very existential philosopher. For Kierkegaard, there was a necessary freedom of the will that God desired for moral agents, especially humans, to have so that there would be a free giving of love between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and now humanity can participate, not in the essence, right, because that would be a heresy, not in the essence of the Trinity. We never become one as God, but we become one with God in loving communion. So evidently, you know, God just thought whatever the cost that this sort of reality was worth it. Does that put me in more of camp one or camp two? I don't know. <laughs> my, As I've admitted before, my camp two uh, tendencies are written into me from my upbringing and my experiences. I would normally say I, I you know, I use a more gospeled, as in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I try to use that intentionally as my hermeneutic control. When I deconstructed, went through a process of deconstructing my own faith, my my own faith, gosh, 
all the Calvinists are really going to be angry at me. A process of deconstructing my my faith in my college years. Um, the thing I came back to was the person of Jesus. Uh, there were so many other questions I had about the Bible, about things in the Bible at that point. And my way back in, it was maybe a relatively short journey, but my way back in was going, ah, this historical person of Jesus, what do I do with him? And it was really the old liar, lunatic, or Lord <laughs> apologetic that I, I had to wrestle with. Is he, is he who he says he was? How do we know that? So that, for part of my own spiritual journey, I just confess is really part of my rubric then. I, I I can't separate that from my rubric for reading the rest of scripture. So I probably have more gut inclinations towards the second camp, but I'm not a process theologian. Uh, I want to have Greg Boyd on for some discussions and questions that I have from years of being a card-carrying open theist or a person that I, even at the time, preferred to say, had an open view of the future to some of my questions about it. So, all right, let's move on to the next question. All right, so I started with that first question because I think in many ways it will hopefully help answer, or at least touches on this second question. This question comes from Michael, a.k.a. Ty, Tyler. Hi, Ty. Hi, Michael. <laughs> hey, Paul, you had a guest on who touched on this subject, but looking for some more thought. If God is supremely sovereign and already knows the path and choices we would make, First, is that really free will or just a counterfeit free will? How is it that we could affect the heart and action of God through prayer? Can we really change his mind, heart on something through petition? And if he does change his mind, wasn't it always destined to change? Therefore, it doesn't actually change. He puts, ha ha, thanks, Paul. Well, just, you know, throw out some easy questions here. For me, <laughs> you know? uh, these are these are great. I mean, these are these are the questions that you know Christians and have wrestled with for two millennia. First of all, let me say that it's a common mischaracterization to s reduce this discussion on this subject, the the subject of God's sovereignty and human will. It's it's a mistake to reduce it to what's commonly reduced to in. Protestant evangelical settings as being a debate between Calvinism and Arminianism. As if, you know, discussions on these subjects only began, you know, 400, 500 years ago. You can go all the way back to before Augustine, which would have been in the fourth century, and you go to the early church fathers, and you're going to find a, a variety of perspectives going all the way back to this time period where you may have some that as you read them, someone like an origin and you might read origin and you go, boy, it seems like this guy is what you would call maybe a free will theist. Uh, they believe in some form of like libertarian free will that all of human history isn't part of a, a blueprint or it hasn't been foreordained by God. 
And then you have others that, you know, like in Augustine, especially later in Augustine's life as he, um, you know, especially later in Augustine's life as he started to enter into his debate against Pelagius, moved more into a sort of deterministic worldview and even uh, even leading to what we could call like a double predestination later in Augustine's life where he essentially made these conclusions that, that were continued on by a guy like John Calvin. John Calvin just is grabbing on to Augustine's idea that 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 God has sovereignly decreed that ha- God has foreordained all events to occur, that what we experience, everything from the selection of our clothes in the morning to whether or not we will become a, a Christian are determined and settled in the mind of God before it happens in any sort of way that we could say before and after in our, in our, in our sense of time and being and temporality. And so that would even play all the way out to salvation. And so that, you know, that just as a side note, that helps you understand sort of the, the logical coherence of something that some have called like limited atonement that Christ's work on the cross is only for those whom God has elected to receive it because of this uh, sense in which God has foreordained and has written all of history. So that, that would be a logical consequence for Augustine later in life, for someone like John Calvin, which again brings us to like the first question that Paul had brought up in, in today's episode the, 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 and the sort of categories, I suppose, the two categories that you could split Christians into, it brings up team two, which goes, hang on a second, if this is the way God chooses to act in the world or has chosen to uh, write reality in this specific way, how is this God loving? How is this God benevolent and good if he has foreordained people without any sort of agency or selection on their own part to end up in you know, in a state of being a vessel of dishonor. But that's, I know, that's not ultimately your question, but it's its connected to the problem of your question, which has to do with prayer and has to do with whether or not we can affect in any real way changes, whether possibility is truly possible. So to help maybe some of you really understand the thrust of, of, of Michael's question, We'll do a little thought experiment here that I would frequently do in class. Wherever you're sitting right now, whether it's listening in your car or at your desk at work or something like that or at home, you know, take a look at any two objects in front of you. Maybe if you're driving, let's look at you're on a four-lane highway and you look at the lanes that you are deciding and mulling over whether or not to switch from one lane to another Let's say you have the opportunity to uh, move into the left lane or move into the right lane right now. 
you're weighing out that decision, the, the process that's taking place in your mind. You are very much under the impression that if you choose to go from the left lane to the right lane, if you choose to go from the right lane to the left lane, that you are fully in control of that capability, right? But let's say for a moment that you choose to move in to the left lane. The question I would always pose to people with this thought experiment is, did God know when you were going, that that you were going to choose the left lane? And for most Christians, they would say, yes, God knew that. He knew that that would happen. The follow-up question then is, so when did God know that? When did God know that you were going to move into the left lane? Was it right before you made that decision? Was it in eternity past? And if God perfectly knew that you were going to move into that left lane, were you really free to do so? Because was it within the realm of possibility for you to actually have moved into the right lane? Let's say God knew from eternity past, whatever that means, let's say before the creation of the world, that in this specific moment, you were going to move from the right lane to the left lane. Well, if that is the case, weren't you destined to do so? So in many regards, like the, the traditional debate, at least in Protestant circles, that we label Calvinism and Arminianism, some people have gone and said, well, okay, what's the difference? Well, usually the difference has been the two primary camps throughout church history have said, well, all right, there are there is the things that God has foreordained by an intentional act of will on God's part to will this particular thing vision of reality into existence, to will this story into existence, and it is playing out exactly and in keeping with God's will, with his sovereign will. Then there have been others who have said, well, no, God has not intentionally willed prior to, it's not logically prior to the choice, but God has foreknown, he has been able to foresee from eternity past how all of human choices will play out. And in that way, he has knowledge of it, but he is not the causal determinant of that choice. He is not the one who is ultimately responsible as causation for that choice. The question some people have proposed as, as they've looked at that, and even maybe you're kind of wrestling with this too, is, all right, what is the functional existential difference in your day-to-day -day life between those two options? If God has willed it into be, he has willed it by maybe some in those these camps might use the phrase like divine decree, if this has flown from an intentional decision on God's part, everything from not just the cross, right, or these meta massive events in, in human history or in, in the redemptive story, if it hasn't been just that, but it plays all the way out to you choosing as you're driving which lane to shift your vehicle into, all right, then you're obviously predestined to do that. 
But the problem that even comes up with foreknowledge is if God has eternally foreknown, did you ever really have the possibility to move into the right lane? Did you really ever have the possibility between college A or college B, job A or job B, spouse A, spouse B, if God has eternally foreknown that you will always choose that? Some would bring up the question, well, then possibility isn't truly possible either way. And even the question, this is ultimately strikes at the question of why do we pray? Why do we pray about, and not just what we might consider sort of the devotional prayer life of someone who just seeks to you know, communicate and commune with God, but that we might say petitionary prayer. Why have prayers of petition, uh, uh, an asking of, of God to intervene, to step into the story that we are looking to see him bring about a different result in. We are asking God for a result of something that seems beyond our own agency to do in and of ourselves. That's that's a frequent kind of prayer that people participate in. In fact, it's probably the most frequent. God, uh, please keep this from happening, or uh, can you bring this this sort of result about in the world or in my life or in my family's life? But if Que sera, sera, that old phrase, whatever will be, will be, is true. What is the point of prayer? And, you know, even this is a debate that's gone on even before Christianity existed. This is a debate that has gone all the way back to, you could go into Greek philosophy. And the Stoics, for example, were a school of thought that believed that everything is determined. They had a a theology that led them to determinism, that all events are determined before they actually happen. So for the Stoic, the Stoic then becomes, the Stoic school of thought is because you cannot actually affect these changes, what you should do is learn to live with an acceptance of them, to learn to not fight against them. It was a way of sense dealing with suffering, which really might be at the heart of all religious and philosophical traditions is the, the dealing with the problem of suffering. Now, if the scriptures revealed a stoic God, then I might say, yeah, you have a point like prayer. Uh, prayer seems pretty useless. And what we should be doing is learning how to accept what has already become in a lot of ways that does end up being the sort of pastoral advice that can happen in that first camp, the camp that does see uh, the, the thing that makes God most God, his, uh, his power and his, uh, you know, the traditional notions of sovereignty. The pastoral encouragement then becomes to help people deal with their internal life. And in many ways, it's almost a, a kind of Camus sort of existentialism and in, in the myth of Sisyphus uh, theology, right? Where you might be fated to this particular thing, but in a certain sense, you, you, you have a responsibility for your inner world 
the life of your mind, the life of your spirit. There's going to be things that are, everything happens outside of your control. But the pastoral encouragement then becomes like just to accept these things as acts of God and that you need to trust in faith that God is good and that they're leading to his, and there can be different things that define God's goodness, like his glory, or it leads to the completion of his plan, right? So in that case, it can be difficult to find a need or find any sort of use for petitionary prayer, which can be why some of those traditions that might fall a little bit more into that first camp don't practice petitionary prayer with the same sort of intensity as people who may be in a bit more of that second camp, the camp that sees what makes God most God is his benevolence. Those that see it that way have a usually a sort of theology, a metaphysics, an ontology that somehow makes room for things to go not according to plan. There's room for things like God actually changing his mind, which is really interesting. So, you know, we could see examples of this, especially in the Old Testament, this Hebraic thought doesn't seem to be very stoic. We see God experiencing things like regret. In Genesis 6, it talks about how God had regretted that he had even made humanity. Their wickedness had gotten to that point. Uh, there's also other incidences where it seems as if, again, the language seems to be communicating that God has changed his mind. There's the incident in which after Moses comes down from Mount Sinai, he's got the Ten Commandments, and all of a sudden all the children of Israel are, you know, partying it up with, uh, you know, idols. They've melted down the Egyptian gold and have gone back to worshiping these idols that God goes, I'm going to scratch like this plan with these people. I'm just going to wipe them all out and, and, and start over. And in that scene, Moses somehow is able to talk Yahweh out of doing this. His petitionary intercessory prayer seems to bring about the effect of changing his mind. Now, the people in that first camp, you know, the camp again that sees what makes God most God as his his power go, yeah, those are just anthropomorphisms. That is to say, it's language assigned to God that uses human terms so to just help us make sense of the, the story, but God doesn't actually change his mind like a human. To which the response to that is, well, even an anthropomorphism must point to something that is true about God. Or otherwise, is this scene not accurate? Does, does God is God in no way influenced by the prayers of people? Can he not change his mind? Is he then stuck with this sort of being trapped, in a sense, outside of time? Does God not have agency to act in the world in a particular way? Maybe with a different way of being able to respond to the different ways that moral agents act in the universe. And then what do we do about like even Jesus, the incarnated son of God, God in the flesh, his prayer in the garden, 
of if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. In, in Christ and in his humanity as he's facing the fear and the, 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 the internal turmoil of what is to come ahead brings up the question of, is this possible to do it a different way? If possibility isn't truly possible, if there isn't the reality that different outcomes can come about as a result of prayer, then we shouldn't practice it at all. I think the real encouragement for uh, I'd give to Michael or anybody else wrestling with this question is that I don't know if, just like the first question Paul had asked, I don't know if there's a way that we can ultimately get to a point of knowing objectively how this thing works, right? I think there are things that we can affirm about God coming from the scriptures, that we can affirm these things about God's character and nature. We can also affirm the sorts of ethical instructions that he gives to us, the way that he wants us to live in the world, including to be people of petitionary prayer and to live in the world in which we actually act as if possibility is truly possible. I think the hard part then is, okay, if you take those things, you you try to understand God's character and nature, you try to understand how he has instructed us to live in accordance with his designs for reality. In that space, how do you then come up with a sort of metaphysics or ontology for how you live in the world and how you believe God's character and nature to be to make sense together. So this is why, you know, for me, especially when I was younger, and again, I've, I've brought this up. I'm, I'm not settled on this point yet. I'm, I'm working back through it. You know, this is where I found, you know, sort of open view of the future appealing because In that view, the question isn't really, sometimes it's mischaracterized, and there have been open theists that have done a bad job of describing this. It's been characterized as God limiting his own knowledge on a subject. I preferred at the time to think of it as God created the very structure of reality to consist of possibilities that don't become actualities until moral agents choose them. Therefore, God knows everything there is to be known. There just are things that are yet to be known that until uh, humans and even, if you want to, angelic beings act as the sort of sub-creators given dominion to actually act in the world to bring about particular realities. That for me was appealing. I know for other people that maybe wrestle with this, they have come to sort of, um, there's another school of thought called Molinism, like William Lane Craig, kind of a well-noted Christian apologist, philosopher, is a Molinist. And Molinism would be then the school of thought that God essentially has a knowledge of all possible worlds. So almost like a multiverse, right? So the open view of the future or open theism is this view that the structure of reality is built in such a way that there are these possibilities that exist in reality that aren't actually 
become a particular thing and do not become settled and therefore do not become a thing to be known until moral agents act in a particular way to make it a reality and therefore it becomes the thing to be known. So there's that. Molinism is like all of the possible moral actions of humans, whether it's praying for something or not praying for something, all exist in the mind of God. And then God acts in the world to bring about a particular vision among those possible worlds. And, and so, the, you know, Molinus would talk about like middle knowledge, that God has this middle knowledge of all possible worlds and then acts to bring about a particular vision of that world. And so for like a Molinist, prayer would be maybe a, a way of discerning or participating with the way God wants to act in the world to bring about this universe versus a different one. Those in the Augustinian or Calvinist tradition might just go, hey, you know what? Here's the deal. We don't get how this works, but we're instructed to pray, so we're just going to pray, right? And we're going to leave this sort of how this works with the with God's sovereignty as we're going to just chalk it up to mystery, right? So, you know, all of these all of these ways are and we need, I I really want to encourage listeners to be charitable to other people that have a different way of trying to work this out. If not anything, and I'm I'm not giving these any of these questions a real proper treatment, but if anything, I hope you would pick up that there are very legitimate theological reasons why people land in these camps that they do, and they're attempting to preserve something that's been revealed about God's character and nature, or at least they believe again that it's been revealed about God's character and nature, and they're attempting to preserve that and simultaneously to preserve the ethical instructions that that's contained in the scriptures, the instructions for how we are to act in this reality, which includes prayer and includes petitionary prayer. And everybody's trying to work that thing out and they have to come to a conclusion, right? They, they, they do come to a point where they go, all right, well, this is the best that I can do to kind of work these things out. So I would hope that we'd be charitable with each other in our disagreements as to how this thing plays out. The concern I would have, though, a practical, we could say existential concern that I would have, is if you develop a theology that leads you to a point of not wanting to participate in prayer. I think what we have to do is we we have to find a way at some point, we have to choose to believe things and to choose to act in the world a particular way, even when we're unsettled in whether or not this way is ultimately true. We have to live a particular way in the world. I would have concerns for those people who are uh, attempting or, or want to be followers of Jesus that would have a theology, a theological metaphysics and ontology that would lead them away from petitionary prayer, that would lead them to a sort of fatalism, you know? And, and there are plenty of people in the Augustinian, Calvinist, and even Thomistic traditions that in some ways you go, that, that sort of metaphysics and ontology feels like it leads people to determinism, yet they go, I just 
I don't know how, but I think I know my free will. I feel confident that my free choice is my choice to pray or to not to pray, even though I ultimately believe that it's been destined to me to act this particular way out in the world, I somehow also trust that my own decisions, what I feel are my own decisions, are somehow compatible, and I do have to choose the right way. I have to choose God's way. I have to, I have to listen and obey. You know, that, that seems like for other people, that seems like that's logically inconsistent and incompatible. There are people that go, I, we just don't get how it works, but we've got to do it. My concern is when the theology, whether you, it's a sort of deterministic theology, whether, when that leads people to going, I don't need to act in the world in a way that we have biblical imperative to act in the world. I don't need to pray because it doesn't make sense anymore. But you have to find a way to make prayer make sense. You have to find a way in which possibility is actually, you know, it's, it's truly possible. Simultaneously, there are people that would also encourage you, and I would join with them, to, to also be weary of, uh, and this is the concern for many people in that first camp, is that petitionary prayer and our free will somehow we get this impression that we have to be the saviors of the universe and that we have to be, we're the ones actually running creation. And I think the biblical witness points us in the direction of going, no, that's not the case. We are not the saviors. We're not the messiahs. We don't have to run the universe. This is, this is my father's world. (laughs) This is, this is not my world that I have brought into being. I am contingent and he is necessary. So we should also be weary of models of prayer or theologies that lead us to go, it's on us to do this thing. I think somewhere in the middle between these two ditches is what Christians have historically affirmed. Though there have been differences of opinion, I think a broad consensus is that somehow synergistically human will participates with the divine will to, to, to bring about the uh, God's plan, to bring about God's purposes in history, to bring about God's will. And simultaneously, I think we can also say that human agency can act in a particular way to thwart God's will, not ultimately, but in the immediate sense. There are things that happen in the world that we should be able to unequivocally say that's evil, that's wrong, that doesn't happen in a way that God would want it to happen. And if we have a theological construct that leads us into either the ditch of going, no, everything will be, will be, to lead us into stoicism, and on the flip side, to lead us into this sort of humanistic thinking that we are running the world. Both of those are ditches. Find a theology, find a theological framework that affirms your agency in the world matters. It makes a difference. Your prayers matter. And ultimately, you know, it's not on you to fix the world, right? So find a way that that works together. I think there's a range of options that may do that. And I also think we should ultimately be charitable to each other in these sorts of disagreements about how that thing plays out. Well, 
All right, the next question here. Carolyn asks, Hi, Paul, what is your most scholarly guess about what Jesus was doing between 12 and 30 years? Why is there nothing in the biblical canon about Jesus's whereabouts? First of all, I'll say this. Nobody knows. The scholarly guess is your guess is as good as any biblical scholars. Right? Nobody, nobody knows. There is, uh, there's, there's not a, a single theory. There is not an idea that go that anybody can point to and go, yes, this, this is it. You know, there's been some more reasonable ones. Things ranging from, uh, you know, Jesus as a carpenter potentially working on a massive construction project that was happening during this time around the region, you know, that, that Jesus lived in, but we don't know that, right? There's, I mean, we've had everything from that all the way to goodness. I mean, there's even been in the late medieval period, there were, there were legends, right? Legends that a young Jesus had somehow made his way to Britain there's been other legends that during that time Jesus made his way all the way to India, right? No, nobody knows. Nobody knows at all. I think those are fantastical. I, I think they're ridiculous. Those, those ones in particular. Uh, so, so nobody knows. Here's what I would say. I actually find it incredibly encouraging that we don't know anything about what happened in those teenage to early adult years between, you know, age 12, that last scene that we have from his youth where he is unpacking the scriptures in, in, in the temple with the, you know, the, the theologians of his day all the way through his arrival his, on the scene in his ministry years in the, in his baptism with John the Baptist. We, we don't know. And I'm actually encouraged by that. And there's a couple of reasons why. First, I, I actually think that it, it strengthens the veracity of the Gospels as trustworthy documents, as trustworthy ancient documents that are actually giving us a picture into the real historical Jesus. It would have been very easy for the biblical authors to have conjured up a story that might support things that early Christians were really wrestling with like the divinity of Christ and trying to demonstrate his true messiahship to Jewish audiences. There could have been so many stories that the biblical authors could have constructed to strengthen their position. In fact, this is one of the ways that the canon, the gospels in the canon of scripture differentiate themselves from much later apocryphal, what we consider now today to be like false gospels, things written much, much longer, much further after the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that, that really call into question the veracity of those stories. I think it strengthens our ability to trust the witness of the gospel authors because these gospel authors are only reporting things that would have been, for the most part, largely eyewitnessed by a community around Jesus. Certainly there's scenes like, you know, Jesus's temptation in the wilderness where you go, okay, so did Jesus relay this information to his disciples? Well, he, you know, he, he must have, 
you know? So there's, there's some scenes where we don't have a lot of, there wouldn't be a lot of ways to falsify or corroborate the, the story. There's a few of those. But by and large, the ministry of Jesus is a very public ministry. People would have seen these things. The synoptic authors in particular, uh, authors of Matthew, Mark, and Luke are, are writing within a generation of, of Jesus's death and resurrection. And there's probably still people around that were witnesses to these stories. And so I, I think it's really important that those authors are not just conjuring up a story that would help the case of a very early fledgling Christianity that they're actually trying to be faithful witnesses to the life of Jesus. And so if there is no story, they don't make up one, right? Uh, you know, who would have been a witness to Jesus's teenage or early adult years, especially if he wasn't doing anything particularly important on some sort of cosmic redemptive scale like we see in the ministry years of Jesus? What was Jesus doing? Well, he was possibly just a simple carpenter doing mundane things that a first century Palestinian Jewish teenager would do. He maybe was going to synagogue every week. Maybe he went through some sort of, you know, education, some religious education like many boys would have had to when they were younger go through Bet Talmud. Uh, we don't we don't know, but I think we should be encouraged by the fact that we don't know because I think it helps us hopefully see that these are these are not just stories that are being made up to strengthen an argument that these are these gospel authors are truly intending to bear faithful witness to the Christ of history. So I think it's encouraging that way. There's a second way that I actually think this gap is really encouraging on a more personal and meaning level, on an individual meaning level, on a pastoral level. I think it's encouraging that we have this huge gap in Jesus's life where there's we don't know anything about him. I think it should be encouraging for you and I that the very savior of the world probably had some pretty mundane days that weren't exciting. That God in the flesh lived a mundane life of probably doing mundane daily existence things, eating, working, going to the bathroom. <laughs> that this is truly, as the author of Hebrews says, that he, who encourages us that, that Christ was like us, that he was tempted in all things and sinned not, that that, that we have this full assurance that he's human in, in every way that he experienced so many, not everything, not every facet of every human being's life. You know, Jesus was never married, never had kids. You know, he, he, he as far as we know, never fought in a war, was never a soldier or a police officer, never had to deal with debilitating cancer but Jesus was human in a very real sense of having to experience the mundane daily life. Not every day was glamorous enough to be recorded or drew any particular attention to itself. So this should encourage us that we can be content with a life that is simple, with a life that isn't 
revolutionary every day that we ourselves can be content in, in living in the life of Christ, which would include hiddenness, which would include years and possibly even decades of being a nobody in the public eye. And then we, I mean, that's just, if we can talk about this a bit, even Jesus's ministry years, once he is thrust into the public eye on a grand historical scale, you know, for his time, it is not that massive. The effects of his life are obviously massive. They, they carry, even if we just step back from a historical perspective, the most important human being that ever lived, even if you were a materialist, you could say that's likely the case that this Jesus of Nazareth is that, but he wasn't at the time. He never spoke in any massive public amphitheater, though there were several around him. At least we have no record of that, right? He he never ascended to any position of, of governmental power. He never went to Rome, as far as we know. He, you know, maybe spent some time in Egypt, obviously spent some time in Egypt as a boy, but for the most part, like he, he probably didn't travel that much. I mean, we don't know. What we do know is his ministry years were he had 12 close disciples and only one of them showed up at his execution. As far as contemporary historians of Jesus' day go, there are several that make mention of his existence. But, you know, we're not talking Alexander the Great or Julius Caesar here. So I think that could also encourage us to just go, you know, we're, we're people that are called, uh, not to get my preach on here, but we're people that are, are called to be faithful we're called to be faithful with what God has given us and to act in the world in a way that is simply about faithfulness, not about exposure, not about having some massive impact on the world. Uh, if that means faithful in mundane daily tasks, if it means simple living, the working honestly and working with integrity in the world and, and raising kids and we die and only our family knows our names, I think that's okay. <laughs> I think that's okay. All right. I think we're going we're gonna to try. We're not going to split this episode up. We're just going to go for it at this point and finish up. There's only a couple questions remaining, and I, I, think, I think we'll just get them all in today in today's episode here. So Isaac... Isaac asks a couple of questions that are related, part of the same topic. Isaac asks, should Mary be an important part of apologetics and the Protestant evangelical denominations? What's your opinion on the extent to which Mary should be involved in the church or worship? And are there practices, traditions, or doctrines that you think Protestant or evangelical denominations should adopt from Orthodox or Catholic traditions? So this is a great question, Isaac. Let's let's start let's start by maybe understanding how theology is done differently among a Protestant sort of approach, a Protestant epistemology from that of the Orthodox and Catholic traditions. And I, though I am very, very fond of many things about the Orthodox and Catholic tradition, I confess that part of my epistemology is much more Protestant. So what I mean by that, epistemology is the discipline of trying to figure out how do we know things, right? What's the foundation for knowing things? There's a 
pretty fundamental difference between the Protestant and Catholic epistemology. And I, I think it could be divided like this. The, the difference is for Protestants. So let's just start with Catholics, all right? Catholics begin with the locus of authority, the location of authority being the church, in particular, the institution of the Catholic church. They start with church authority as their location, their ultimate locus of authority for discerning God's will. So when you start from there, you're going to land in different places than if you say come from a more Protestant background that starts with the location of authority being a text, a, the, the scriptures, right? The Bible. And so if you start from there, you can s sometimes figure this out if you have interactions with people that are, are Catholic or maybe even even Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox, is you can start having discussions about particular subjects, theology or doctrine, and you can really quickly begin to find out that maybe you're doing theology from, from a different location. Your starting point is different. So that starting point is, can be so radically different that it can be, can be hard to reconcile particular things. For example, the the incorporation or the the high regard for Mary, Mariology, which is uh, obviously a, a big deal in the Catholic tradition and also in the Orthodox tradition, especially compared to the Protestant tradition. The dividing point there really has to do with the authority of the church. And if the church authorizes a a veneration, a special veneration for Mary as the the the, the mother of God, then if that is the place that you start your theological epistemology from, if you start with the authority of the church, well, then it's simple. The church has said this, right? Now, before, because many of you maybe are coming from Protestant evangelical sorts of traditions, and you have a really hard time wrapping your mind around why anybody would start with authority, church authority, as their beginning point. There's a good, I'll, I'll play devil's advocate, I, let's not say devil's advocate, I'll play the, the Pope's advocate here, that the starting point, starting with church authority in some ways would make some sense, because if you're going to start from scripture, which is again a much more Protestant tradition, a sola scripture, if you're going to start from scripture, the question Catholics and even Eastern Orthodox are going to ask is, okay, how did these scriptures come to be? By why don't you, for example, follow the Mormon scriptures, the Book of Mormon? Why don't you incorporate the Quran, you know, the Islamic sacred text in that tradition? Well, it's because you said at a certain point the church authorized these particular books of the Bible to be part of a canon of scripture that we're going to hold on to. So what you've said in saying, I go with sola scripture, is that at some point the church was authoritative, that God was working through the church to set the limits. You know, another Catholic critique that gets brought up is, you know, many Protestants still talk about things like heretical viewpoints, right? Viewpoints that are outside of the Orthodox Christian perspective. We'll take, for example, like Trinitarian heresies. 
if you are not a historic Trinitarian, most Protestants, evangelicals would say, you know, there are some differences here. Maybe you're in the sort of kind of Pentecostal apostolic tradition, which can sometimes be a Jesus-only camp, or maybe you're in a modalist tradition where you think that the Father, Son, and Spirit are different modes of God. Many Protestants would go, that's heretical. It's against it's it's against the scriptures. But to be quite frank, it is really difficult to come to the particular metaphysical understanding of the Trinity that was the conclusion of the church, really, as these debates were going on in the third, fourth century. It's hard to do that without incorporating sort of the the Neoplatonic, the Platonic metaphysics of that day, because anybody that studied Neoplatonism and then studied you know the 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 arguments about the, the the trinity that took place in this patristic era can see that they are borrowing this sort of language and framework to help people understand how the father the son and the spirit can all be part of the same essence that the son is the same substance as the father and in that way they participate in the same essence though they're three persons and that person language can be confusing so in many ways, they'll go, see, this has been settled back in the past. And so now you're acting in a heretical way. See, so then the Catholics go, hey, hang on a second. You're saying that the church does have authority, right? The Protestant critique then in the Protestant tradition is to go and say, all right, okay, so we confess. You got us here. We confess that, uh, yes, God has acted in the church to bring about the, the closing of the canon. And so when we say Sola Scripture, we have to confess that. But what has informed your practices and the authority for your institution of, of the church having any authority at all? If there were no scriptures, did the scriptures exist before the church? Well, in a certain sense, you might say, no, the Bible didn't. But in a certain sense, yes, they did. And that's part of what makes them canon. The Old Testament was already completed, right? Uh, the Old Testament canon was effectively closed. I know there was some debate about what should be included still, but was effectively closed in that first century in which Jesus lived. I know there's some debate about that. But the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all written within a lifetime of Jesus. There's some debate about John, but we'll pause that for a moment. You know, maybe it's a lifetime and a half away from Jesus. Paul's epistles are written, you know, within a lifetime of, of Jesus. These are all things that are happening that pre, in many ways, they, they predate the closing of the canon, obviously. So the, the community of God originates not just out of a text, because yes, the church had already existed before there was the writing down of Matthew's gospel or Mark's gospel. That The community had already existed. The New Testament epistles and the New Testament gospels are written for a community that exists. But that community, what are they doing when they gather? We know that they are gathering around two things. They're gathering around the scriptures and they're gathering around the Lord's table. We know this historically. 
So the scriptures are shaping what the church community should look like. And I think this is this is what people like Erasmus and Luther were getting at. Now, Erasmus was never a, a, like a reformer, a defecting reformer from the church. But in the early movements of the Protestant Reformation, Erasmus and Luther were concerned about this church becoming untethered from the text, becoming untethered from the historic church, which was rooted in this scriptural community. And so much of the Reformation impulse was, hey, we need to return to the source, right? We need to have checks and balances against church authority because there's been a lot of things that have crept into church practice and the life of the church that we're looking and we're finding them to be absent from the early witness of the church community as witnessed in the text of the New Testament. We can't find it in there. We can't find indulgences in there, right? We can't find these other things. And, and that opened up Pandora's box to all sorts of other people, especially because of the now the ease and accessibility of people to have the scriptures in their native tongue because of the printing press, Johann Gutenberg, the printing press was like the internet you know, the internet of the Reformation era. And so now people are reading this text in their own language. And as they compare the practices of the church with the text, they go, hang on a second, we're seeing things in there. Now, for me, my perspective personally, I think Mariology is a part of that that needs to be compared to the text because I do start primarily from you know, I've, I've walked you guys through this sort of hermeneutic and epistemology before in the past. And, you know, the location of the th- of authority is ultimately in God. This is where we find out wh- how we should think about the world. How that is made manifest is through reason and through revelation. The revelation comes via the Spirit through human authors to a text, right, two actual incidences in human history that make up a text. So God is also working in history. He's also working through his church. I I try to marry these things together, but when I want to figure out what what should my thoughts about God and and, and, and Christian doctrine look like, I go back to the text, and you probably picked up, I try to go back as early as I can in church history uh, to see those people who are closest to the era of the disciples in the apostolic tradition, to see what they think. It doesn't mean that their thoughts are foolproof because they are people situated in a particular culture, but that's kind of my practice. Um, as I go back and go to the text, I, I find it difficult to support the sort of veneration of Mary that takes place in Catholic and Orthodox traditions simultaneously, I do think the Protestant reaction against anything to do with Mary can be a bit extreme. If I go to the text, and if I go to Luke 1, for example, and we we see the announcement of uh, the angel Gabriel to Mary about the the conception that is to come and and who she will be carrying in her womb, I mean, we, we see that that this angel says 
says to Mary, you, know, you found favor with God. You are highly favored. The Lord is with you. There is something about Mary, <laughs> 90s movies reference there, but there is something something about Mary that, that we should regard and highly regard. What is it about her that made her someone that God chose to use her and to uh, operate with her to bring about his incarnated son? It is something that we should go, wow, we want to look at what is what should we be modeling about Mary's attitude, the posture of her heart? What, why did you select her, God? And we, I think we should have a high regard for her role as being the only woman in human history that has given birth to God in the flesh, that she carried in her womb and she was faithful in doing so as a young girl carrying the salvation of the world in her womb. I think that should give us some sort of very high regard for the role that she played in God's redemptive story. But simultaneously, I don't think I can derive from the text notions of a sinless Mary, for example. I, I don't think that that's necessary. I don't find it to be founded. But again, I, I'm doing theology from a, a different location. As far as should we, you know, your question, your question, Isaac, about you know, sh- should Protestants and evangelicals incorporate her more into worship— I would say no, but with a qualifier, I, I, I do think come Advent season that we should give a lot more attention and reflection to this story and to uh, giving thanks to God for the role that Mary played in participating. I think we can be thankful for that. I think we can uh, ruminate on that story. I think we can celebrate in many ways the Annunciation without moving into areas of Mariology that I would suggest, along with many others in this broad, more Protestant tradition, without moving into areas that may be unfounded. But again, that is the place that I do theology from, and I fully respect my Catholic and Orthodox brothers and sisters who do it from a different location. I might have a disagreement, but to me, this isn't, uh, this isn't reasons for me to consider them enemies or anything like that. Some of the stuff that has led to actual bloodshed and war, um, to me, we, we, obviously we don't need to go that far. And to actually answer the other part of your question, I I think there are many things that we can benefit from as we dialogue with people from other traditions. This isn't just a Protestant v. you know, Catholic Orthodox thing. This is within the diverse traditions that fall loosely under this more Protestant umbrella that there's much that we can learn. I think there's much we can learn from Catholics and the Orthodox tradition, because of their deep connection to tradition, if we're able possibly to to learn and, and to glean something from them, there's a couple of things I would say is, um, and I'll speak from my own experiences here, that the Catholic and Orthodox tradition and their emphasis on the, the centrality of the Eucharist to Christian worship has made, made me go back and re-examine, well, why isn't it central in 
my context where we do it like once a month. Why is that the case? And it, so I start going through the scriptures and I start going through the history of the church and I start going back even into the first and second centuries, those early Christian communities that were very close, very close to the apostolic tradition and the witness. And and what I find out is that, you know, the uh, the slang term for early Christian worship was uh, in the first two centuries was they, they called it the love feast. And what I find out is that, you know, Christians from the first century into the second century, the centerpiece of Christian worship that gathered together once a week, and yes, the, Acts tells us they met together in homes regularly, etc. But there was a there was a central once a week meeting on what was become the new Christian Sabbath, you know, to essentially continue on, but with a new practice of meeting on the day of the resurrection on Sunday. That they had this love feast, and the center point of worship was the potluck at the end, <laughs> that this practice of the Eucharist wasn't even just like, here's some bread and wine, but it was really a, a feast together where they would enact the Lord's Supper. Yes, there's going to be bread and wine, but it was a meal. And that should even help you understand some of the dilemmas that uh, Paul is addressing in Corinthians, where there are people coming to the table in an un unworthy manner. And what we would have been happening there was that this this community, which was very divided among rich and poor, that we 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 have reason to believe that the, the poor were not, they were in the end of the line and getting the scraps at the potluck, essentially, right? And so, you know, Paul is breaking down this division between the rich and the poor. This is a central theme, actually, in Luke's gospel, where um, eating is a central part of all many, many stories that happen in Luke. Luke puts this heavy emphasis on scenes involving food and tables and eating together because Luke writes to a context which is, again, very uh, cosmopolitan, and there's this divide between rich and poor that's just indicative of the divide that we have seen throughout human history in cosmopolitan areas between the really, really rich and the poor in that area. And so he uses the table to help people see the significance of believers gathering together. So I look at that and I go, man, I'm thankful that there has been some traditions that have at least kept some shape of that, right? That they've, what is it about the table that is so formative to the way that we look at the rest of life. I think for many Catholics, I've talked about this before, for many Catholics, this practice of, of seeing Christ in the material bread and wine, seeing him transform that is a way of practicing, a way of seeing the world around them that sees in many ways the enchantment of the world. I think that that sort of practice was formative for a guy like Tolkien, who, of course, wrote the, the Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and all the, you know, the, the Middle Earth sagas that we have that are filled with sort of enchanted world, a world in which trees can talk and a world in which, you know, uh, the magic and supernatural is embodied in the material world. Uh, a very very holistic way of thinking, I, I see that and I go, what role did his 
Catholicism play? And specifically, what role did that formation of gathering around really basic elements and saying Christ is present in these things, what did they do to shape Tolkien's imagination? So I, I, those are a couple ways I think, you know, we can learn we can learn things from every tradition. We can sift through that. Yes, there's going to be sometimes a, a point in which we go, you're not seeing eye to eye. And, you know, that that's just part of the deal. And we might have some different starting points for doing theology. But I think there's actually much benefit that we can get from conversations with Catholics and Orthodox looking at their practices of worship and assessing like, oh, are we missing something here? All right, one last question here. This last question comes from Stephen in Australia. Stephen asks, who has been your all-time best housemate? Or if you could narrow it down to your top three Australian housemates, that will do. Well, Stephen, this is a very simple answer. Uh, In my number one housemate uh, would be Eric Bana, and uh, he would be in first place. Second place would be uh, Kelly Perry, and third place would be Stephen Perry. So in in that in that order, that's my top three: Eric Banner, uh, Kelly Perry, and Stephen Perry. Of which other listeners are probably going, "Wow, the lead singer of Journey once lived with you." I didn't know he was Australian. Uh, sorry for the inside joke for everybody else. Uh, Steve, love you, brother. Uh, we miss you in the land down under. Uh, yeah, thanks for listening, everybody. If you want to participate in future Q&A episodes, get involved on Patreon. You, you can find the link in the description. I want to thank all of the Patreon supporters who have participated in making this episode and other episodes possible. I want to thank specifically, um, I want to specifically thank Paul and Paul, I'm going to get your last name wrong here. Paul Rissy, Paul Risey, I want to thank you for, for becoming a Theology 201 level supporter. So I appreciate that. Thank you guys. Such great questions. Again, um, if you want to participate in these and you want to submit your questions, you can get connected on Patreon. I'm really excited that over the next month, I've got some awesome, awesome guests I can't wait for you guys to hear those conversations. It's, it's just going to be great. So if you want to reach out and connect with me, you can follow me on Twitter. I, I do my best to respond to messages and respond to uh, tweets. I, I love having interactions that way. Uh, some of you have reached out via Instagram too as well. That's probably not primary, but you can still head over there. I usually at least share podcast-related stuff on my Instagram account too. And uh, thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. I hope this has been helpful. We'll probably, we're going to try to do this again next month. Let me know if you want to do more Q&A episodes, if this was helpful, if you just were like, dude, this was way too long. You crammed way too much <laughs> into, into one, one episode. That's very well possible. We're pushing almost a couple hours here. But, you know, the good thing about this format, you don't have to listen to it in one sitting. I like to with the longer podcasts that I listen to, I usually will just kind of like break it up over my commute over multiple days. So hopefully you can do that. Thanks again. We will talk to you again soon. <laughs>